Okay, we are have with us today James Knights, the author of Soldier Girl Blue. It's the story of a Canadian woman who disguised herself as a man and enlisted in the American Civil War. Now, Mr. Knights, would you, I'd rather call you James. Call me James. Mr. Nice was my father. Okay. So would you introduce yourself for the audience, please? Hi, I'm, I'm Jim Knights. I am the author of Dixie Instead of, of Soldier Girl Blue. Um, by way of establishing my, my bona fides, I, uh, I'm also on the board of directors of the Society for Women and the Civil War. That's wcw.org if you're interested. I'm also a member of the uh, Seminary Ridge Museum in Gettysburg and the, uh, the Friends of Gettysburg. Uh, lastly, my great-great-grandfather was a soldier in the Civil War. He must have been in Boston, Massachusetts. Very nice. And so you've been studying on the Civil War for a long time. And you've got all the pieces in the right place. So the historical part of this from the Civil War side, side is authentic. Now, tell us a little bit about the heroine. Well, I, I thought uh, I had, I did know a lot about the Civil War until I was reading uh, by John Boyko, which I have right here. Um, Blood and Daring, How Canada Fought the American Civil War and Fourth the Nation. I have um, Canadian ancestors and living in Pennsylvania, I'm only three and a half hours from Gettysburg. And having been a, a federal employee, I was able to uh, attend many of their, their federal uh, leadership programs. And I, I had occasion to ask them, you know, how many Canadians do you think were here in Gettysburg? And they, they didn't really know. So I began my own research project, came across Boyko's book, and then I found uh, uh, Sarah Emma Edmonds of New Brunswick, Maka David, New Brunswick, by the way. And um, she was the only Canadian woman that we know of who disguised herself as a man and fought in the war. Uh, between 400 and 550 women did the same thing, but she was the only Canadian. As a matter of fact, she wasn't even strictly a Canadian because Canada wasn't yet a country until Confederation in 1867, after the Civil War had been fought. Um, being from New Brunswick, she was uh, simply a, a subject of Queen Victoria and a, member, uh, a resident of one of the British provinces. They were also the British provinces then. Um, she was... Um, about 15 or 16 years old when she left home, her father was trying to marry her off. He was very abusive, very misogynistic, um, and had wanted a son instead he got her. Uh, her mother was an Irish immigrant who helped her escape. She um, traveled around uh, New Brunswick, finally became a Bible salesman, found a better job in Michigan, Flint, Michigan, emigrated to the US, which wasn't very hard back then, and uh, was there when the war broke out in 1861. And uh, feeling she had to be a very uh, outgoing, you know, A plus personality to begin with to do what she was doing. And she disguised herself as a man because it was simply safer. A young woman couldn't travel by herself safely back then. So traveling as a man was much safer for her to do. And she, uh, she enlisted in the 2nd Michigan Infantry, the militia, as a field nurse, which today would be a combat medic. Fascinating story, I think. And um, after proving herself, um, she eventually did. Uh, volunteered to become a spy behind the lines and went behind the lines several times 
Now, in her memoir, which she published after the war, and she used that money to provide support to uh, wounded and sick military veterans, she did admit that she um, fabricated some of the stories, used stories from others, but also her own information. Now, her, her biographer, Sylvia Dannett, in another book, she wrote with the general, written in 1960, but very thoroughly researched. She uh, was able to verify that Edmonds was in the Army for two years, was a field nurse, and was a spy on at least two occasions behind the lines. The first time she disguised herself as a black slave boy. So all in all, a very truly fascinating story. And I wrote the book. I had written three novels before, and I wrote this one to educate the public. I didn't write it as a historical treatise. I wrote it simply to get people interested. And in the last chapter, I provide my research sources so people can go on their own and read more about her and about the other women who fought in the war. And another book I read, um, They Fought Like Demons. Uh, it goes into some of the more high-profile uh, women who uh, disguise themselves as on both sides, Confederates and Union. And one of the co-authors is Deanne Blanton, who is also on the board of directors for the Society for Women in the Civil War. So that's the, that's the background. Okay, if you, if you would provide us with links to those books, it might be something that someone might want to follow up on. I'll do that. That would be nice. So I generally stay away from books about war because they tend to they tend to glorify the whole idea of war, which from my own personal point of view is very wrong. I find Soldier Girl Blue is very much the opposite. And the reading that you will do highlights what I consider your opinion about war in general. Can you elaborate on that? Tell me if I'm right or wrong. No, you're, you're right. Um, I spent my time in the, in the service. Uh, U.S. Coast Guard didn't do a lot of tramping through jungles back in the 1970s back then, but also 26 years in law enforcement. Uh, no, I wanted to present a, a realistic picture of what war is and what she went through, what the women went through. It wasn't easy. It was, it was, I was deployed uh, with my agency to Iraq in 2007. Um, and what I saw the soldiers and service people going through, and some of them having been deployed over and over again, no glory. It's no glory. Uh, it's, no, it's not uh, fun. It's not it's much exciting from time to time. Mostly it's boring. Um, but uh, and I want to project that into the book uh, as a real, as you say, realistic uh, idea or notion of what war really is. People who have been in war, the generals or admirals, they're the last people who want to go to war. Right. And you had the doctor sort of emphasizing the fact that it's not the common soldier, the one that actually shoots the bullet that kills your loved one. Is not the one that's really to blame. Correct. Yeah. It's the leadership. Always the leadership. Always the leadership. Yes. It's it always very... Who's in charge? Who's the captain of the ship? It's their fault. And how long have humans been on this earth? And we haven't figured that out yet. How to avoid we this? Keep, we have to keep relearning it. <laughs> we never do, really. Right. It's going on in the world today. It's, it's, you know, it's really depressing. As he said in the book, he doesn't see a lot of hope. But I think that my readers and the people who follow what I do kind of already know that I love a happy ending. 
So this is a bit of a spoiler alert. <laughs> it's not all deep depressing. There's a lot of interesting facts and stories and redemption of an individual heroism that makes this book a really good read. And I'm, I'm just so happy you're sharing it with us. And now let's listen as James reads a selection from Soldier Girl Blue. We find our protagonist, U.S. Army Field News Corporal Edmund Fredericton, who in reality is Emily Edmonds, offering his condolences to the regimental surgeon, Dr. McGregor, over the recent loss of his son at the Battle of Shiloh. Chapter 41, Place of Peace. I never knew about your son. Fredericton hesitated, that you, you had one, I mean. He had first gone to the hospital tent where Kate was torn between fussing over the fact he was back safely from his mission and telling him about McGregor's loss of his son. After assuring her he had survived behind the lines with all limbs intact and had already learned about the doctor's son from McClellan, he impressed upon her that his most demanding need at the moment was to speak to the doctor. Dr. McGregor was off duty for a few hours, Kate said, and could be found at his tent if he was needed. By the time Fredericton found McGregor sitting outside his tent on a gnarled oak log, it was raining very gently. It occurred to Fredericton that the sky reflected both their moods. It was merely weeping, not sobbing outright. McGregor had propped up one of the canvas flaps of his tent with a branch for protection against the rain. He wasn't doing anything in particular aside from puffing on a thin cigar. He was just sitting. At first, McGregor seemed to ignore him. Finally, he motioned to the empty spot next to him. McGregor looked up at him. Yes, I had a son. I'm very sorry, doctor. Fredericton was careful to conceal his hands under his kepi. He didn't want them to be a distraction should McGregor notice the raw blisters he had earned as the slave Kip. My wife died a little more than six years ago, influenza. But we have been blessed with two children. My daughter is back home with a family of her own. Writing to tell her her little brother Gil is dead was the hardest thing I ever had to do, including burying my wife. That type of news should be delivered in person. Fredericton listened. This is what he had come to do, distract himself with someone else's pain. You see, Corporal, I had a life before I found myself living this one. A life apart from this nightmare we're trapped in. My intent was to keep it that way, apart, separate. I didn't want what was happening here, what I was, what we were all seeing and doing to violate, to despoil my other life, my true life. I didn't want my memories of this war to mix with those of my family at home. Then Gil joined up and my plans fell to pieces, as plans often do. Somehow, by not telling anyone about him, by not admitting aloud that Gil was in the army, by not speaking the words aloud, I could pretend it wasn't real, that he was home safe. I was being foolish, I know. McGregor hung his head and stared at the ground. I don't think you were being foolish, said Fredericton. I think you were doing the only thing you could that could make it possible to carry on day after day. McGregor didn't answer. Doctor, may I ask where it happened? A place called Pittsburgh Landing in Tennessee. The papers are calling it our costliest battle to date. I have to agree. It certainly cost me dearly. Naturally, our glorious leaders and politicians are hailing it as a wondrous victory for the Union. A Union victory, but a family tragedy. 
even in my present state of mind, I can appreciate the horrible irony of it. What irony, doctor? My family is from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Of course, ours is spelled with an H. You see, if Gil had stayed in Pittsburgh, he'd be alive now. Instead, he died in a place with the same name as his home. McGregor glanced at him, but Fredericton looked quickly away. They had both just suffered great losses, and Fredericton was too near the brink. It would be too easy for him to be overwhelmed by the sadness filling McGregor's eyes. He could not allow himself to break down in front of this man. Let me save you time, Fredericton, McGregor said, but not unkindly. It was on April 6th, the first day of the battle. Gill's regiment, the 22nd Michigan, was in Sherman's 5th Division. That much I know from his letters. According to the regimental surgeon, the Confederates' attack surprised Grant, Sherman, and the other military geniuses Father Abraham judged would be splendid generals. The 5th took the worst of it. The Confederates pushed them back behind a church named Shiloh. That's where Gill took a ball. Shiloh is Hebrew, by the way. I looked it up, since that's where Gill died. It means place of peace. There's another irony for you, a greater one, I think. Sir, what unit was he with? Doesn't matter. You said you're from Pittsburgh, but yet Gill saw action out west, and you're here. Ah, I see. Neither Gill nor I joined in Pittsburgh. At the time, I happened to be teaching at Jefferson Medical College in Philadelphia, so after the Confederates bombarded Fort Sumter, I joined the Philadelphia Brigade. I answered Father Abraham's call, you see. Gill was attending a college in a small town in Hillsdale, Michigan. It's a new college. He went there because the school was fervently abolitionist, as was Gill, and admitted Negroes, believe it or not, and women. The latter may have been the bigger draw, come to think of it. He also wanted to see the West and get away from filthy Pittsburgh. I couldn't blame him for that. After Fort Sumter, most of Gill's classmates left the Hillsdale to join the Army. One of his roommates was from Fremont, Ohio, which was also one of the stops Gill made between Hillsdale and Pittsburgh. The 72nd Ohio was forming up, and his roommate went home to join it. Gill went with him to see him off. I suppose Gill was carried away by all the excitement. He went ahead and joined up. This was after I joined the Philadelphia Brigade. He never gave me any hint that he intended to join up. I told him I expected him to finish school, but he ignored me. Had I known that he was gone for a soldier, as they say, I would have traveled to Ohio and joined the 72nd to be with him. Maybe I could have saved him, God damn it! Was he a rifleman? McGregor turned and looked directly at Fredericton. Again, Fredericton avoided his gaze. McGregor seemed not to notice. No, that's what I meant. Gill was the same as you, a field nurse. Had I been with the 72nd, he would have been working for me. Then he wouldn't have been able to ignore me. In frustration and grief, McGregor ran his fingers through his hair. Then he buried his face in his hands. Fredericton was trying to think of something to say when McGregor collected himself, sat upright, and continued. Anyway, that's why the regimental surgeon wrote to me. Gill told him about me. The man was performing a professional courtesy, I suppose. At least that's one lucky thing. Sir, what's lucky about it? As you have seen for yourself, Corporal, our soldiers are very talented at dying, especially under the direction of our leaders. But our glorious army has no similar talent for informing their families. The War Department hasn't thought it necessary to create a formal protocol for notifying the next of kin that their son, father, brother, or husband is dead. At least I know about Gill. Many families don't find out for months, if ever. They read in the newspapers that their son's regiment was in a battle, just as I did. Then they never hear from him again. They're left to agonize in ignorance, oftentimes forever. That's what it was like for me until I received that damn letter. At least I have that. Many often don't even know where their son's grave is. Christ, they don't know if there is a grave. It must be hell. If anyone bothers to write, it's their comrades-at-arms or people like you 
who are with him when they die in a field hospital, just like you would have done for your countryman, Captain Valentine, back in Georgetown, had we not been successful with him. McGregor suddenly jerked his head up and looked at Fredericton with reddened eyes, which reminds me, please excuse myself and dodges in going on about my loss. I heard about what happened to Valentine. You two have suffered. I'm sorry. Thank you. We grew up together. What were the chances of our meeting among these thousands of soldiers? It was so good having someone from home nearby. Then this happened. I know. Since you knew about my mission, Fredericton said, I suppose it won't matter if I told you. Fredericton told McGregor what happened in Yorktown. I could barely tolerate listening to that animal cane boast about what he'd done, he said. It took all my will to keep from taking someone's musket and shooting him down like a dog. Looking at the doctor intently, he continued, I swear, if I ever get the chance, I will. I never thought I could feel that way about another human being. God forgive me. Cain is responsible for what happened to Valentine. Anyone would feel the same as you. I won't pretend to know God, but I don't believe he'll send you to hell for being human. If you do actually murder him, however, God might treat you differently. Do you consider yourself to be a Christian doctor? Down deep, I suppose I'm more of a Christian than anything else. Though, like you, I don't much feel like a Christian. Not now, maybe never again. Word drives one either to embrace God or go in the other direction. They mean toward Satan, said Ferguson. No, Corporal, I don't mean that. There is no Satan, no devil. Don't let Pastor Brissard hear you say that, Doctor. He spends a lot of breath on Satan at his prayer meetings. Let me clarify what I mean, said McGregor. Evil certainly exists, but it doesn't spring forth from some mythical creature. It's in each of us, Edmund. Each one of God's creations. We're born with it in us. I forget who, but someone once said that every time a child is born, more evil comes into the world. Looking around us, how could anyone not accept that? But if we're not driven toward God, isn't evil the only other direction? No. Cynicism is. I don't understand, Doctor. A cynic is one who lacks hope in humanity. War drives you either closer to God and hope or to cynicism, which is hopelessness. Cynicism is its own kind of hell. From what I've seen of our fellow creatures, I don't see much cause for hope. Fredericton nodded. I don't think anyone here, even Pastor Brossard, he said, could fault you for feeling that way. I wish this, I wish this war would end. McGregor turned to look at Fredericton. He regarded him as if seeing him for the first time. Doctor? McGregor was silent for a moment as he looked into Fredericton's eyes. Finally, he said, What difference would it make? His tone was matter-of-fact. Sir? I don't understand. What happened to your son? You must want this war to end. You have to. Of course, any sane person would want this to end. But the human race overall isn't sane. I repeat, what difference would it make? There would just be another war, then another, and another one after that. I happened to be at headquarters a while ago and overheard General Kearney say he spoke with a contraband from a local plantation who had to be 90 years old if he was a day. The old man told Kearney this wasn't the first time he'd heard cannons firing in Yorktown. Fredericton was confused, sir. When he was a young boy, he heard colonial cannons firing on the British trap in Yorktown. That was over 80 years ago. History is repeating itself, don't you see? Now Fredericton understood. He let the doctor vent his frustration without interruption. Besides, after everything he had experienced up to now, he almost agreed with him. And the insanity will never end, continued McGregor. If you aren't convinced by the evidence of history, not to mention what is that which surrounds you, read the New Testament, Matthew 24, 6. And ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. The ancients were wise. They understood humanity. Maybe it's best to continue this war until we're all dead. Only then will we be done with it. Then nature can reclaim our rotting corpses and start over. After a moment, McGregor added, I'm not a Bible thumper, by the way, but that particular passage strikes a chord. 
Fredericton tried to think of something to say, but could not. He watched as McGregor fixed his gaze on something in the future or the past and absently puffed his cigar. After McGregor fell silent, Fredericton said, I can't help feeling that the way I do about Kane, but what about you, Doctor? Do you hate the Confederates for killing Gill? McGregor thought for a moment, then after exhaling a long stream of cigar smoke, he said, I remember clearly when you and the others brought me the ca casualties back at Bull Run. Then you brought more. Those were the first casualties of the war. Damaged and mutilated young men. Most were just boys, one after the other. Yeah. A river of blood and waves of suffering flowed through the doors of that church. That's not what churches are for. There was one boy about Gil's age, and I'll be damned if he didn't look just like him. And naturally, it would have been an impossibility, but for an instant I thought I saw Gil. I watched him, but of course it wasn't Gil. Up close, he looked like nothing like him. My mind was playing tricks on me. McGregor puffed on his cigar, and whoever it was, he was already dead. Those were hard times, said Fredericton, for all of us. Again, McGregor ignored him. Then it hit me very hard. At the same moment, an army surgeon could be looking down on my son. McGregor looked away and pretended to wipe something from his eye. Fredericton waited. Well, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. On a totally different subject. <laughs> Do you have anything in the works now? I have two books I started on, but I was distracted by other things going on in my life, so they're, they're paused right now. I hope we get back to them. Yeah. Okay. And your other three books, you have a trilogy? I have a trilogy called Benjamin's Field. Uh, it's about a, a farm family here in western Pennsylvania. I live just north of Pittsburgh. Uh, begins during World War One and ends uh, after World War Two. It was uh, originally wrote it as one book, but I was told by several agents that uh, being an unknown author at the time that one book of over a thousand pages probably wouldn't sell very well. So I broke it up into three. It was not hard to do. In three parts. Yes, uh, Benjamin's Field. And my website is jjnights.com. And my name is spelled K-N-I-G-H-T-S. There's an S on the end. Nice okay, that. I will put a link to the to your website in the show notes. Great, thank you. And um, also a link to the sales page of Soldier Girl Blue, Great. which Great. is really a fascinating book. And again, the website for uh, the Society for Women in the Civil War is swcw.org. In July of 2022, our annual conference will be held in Harrisonburg, Virginia at James Madison University. It promises to be very, very interesting. What generally happens at these meetings? Well, we bring in uh, several speakers and they speak, uh, these are scholarly talks on the topic of women, women's involvement uh, in contributions of the civil, during the Civil War. We'll have field trips to local historical sites. Uh, we'll have a banquet, of course, uh, and can anyone register for this? Yes, anyone can. Anyone who's interested can register. Well, that's interesting information. You also mentioned having 26 years, I believe you said, in law enforcement. Yes. Did this contribute to your body of knowledge when you're writing this? Um. I, not directly, but you know, in, in that world, you see a lot of unpleasantness. And um, again, I was with the FBI, and it's not what the public thinks. 
Um, just like you know, you see war movies, and it's not really like that. Um, tell that to a teenager who wants to join the Marine Corps or the Army. But um, having been in the, in the bureau, knowing what it's really like and what people think it's like, I again I wanted to express in the book what what the military is like and what war is really really like. And maybe from that perspective, I yes. Okay. Well, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity. And um, I hope the listeners will take a look at your books and particularly this one. Thanks again. Thank you, Christina.